Welcome to Authors of the Pacific Northwest, where we connect authors with new listeners and provide advice to aspiring authors on the business of writing. I'm your host, Vicki J. Carter. Hi there, podcast listeners. Thank you for coming back to the Authors of the Pacific Northwest. And today I have the privilege of introducing you to Donna Miskolta. Did I say it right, Donna? Yes. Awesome. So Donna, say hi to the listeners. Hello. We are happy to have you here. The first part is I'd like to have the authors get to know my listeners a little bit by you introducing yourself, a little bit about your background. But first, we always like to know what state in the Pacific Northwest you reside in. So where are you at? I live in Washington. I live in Seattle since 1977. You're a resident. I feel, yes, I'm very much from this area by now. I grew up in Southern California um, in... I was born in San Diego, but I grew up mostly in a city just south of San Diego called now. And I lived there until just about a year after college. And then I made my way to the Northwest, spent a brief amount of time in Salem, Oregon before deciding to come to Seattle. Yeah. You came to Seattle at the right time. Prices were decent, right? They, they were, although I was poor, so I had no money, yeah. no savings or anything. Yeah. But yeah. It was manageable. Yeah. I could do it then. Yeah, exactly. I can do it now. No, and we don't, my husband and I, we live in Washington as well. And he worked in Seattle for years, decades. We don't live there. We live south, closer to Vancouver, Portland, have our home there, our families there, because we couldn't now afford to live in Seattle if we wanted to. It's so difficult. Yeah, it is. But it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Alrighty. So do you have a day job or are you one of the wonderful, lucky people that are writing full time as an author? I'm in my second year of retirement. I worked for 30 years as a project manager for King County. Oh, Okay. Yeah, it's, it was a long time. I didn't realize, I didn't expect to spend my entire career at that play, at the play. But it turned out to be a very good place to work. I enjoyed the work. I enjoyed the people. And now that I think about it, 30 years went by pretty quickly. That's a wonderful thing to have said, because I know a lot of people that retire, they're like, I couldn't get out of that job fast enough. <laughs> you know, the 30 years would take forever to... <laughs> yeah, there is truth in that statement, because there were times that I was feeling this is never going to end. But but it does. And you realize all of a sudden that not only have 30 years have passed in your job, 30 years have passed in your the whole your whole life, and you have an unknown amount of time left. But exactly. It's, it's limited for all of us, but still you feel like you're at a certain point of your life that you really want to make the most of absolutely. absolutely. But project management is an interesting role. I work with students that are getting their bachelor's in IT through a university online. And one of the courses we put them through Project Plus, so the beginning of project management management so they understand the concepts around it. Do you structure time like a project manager? Do you do all the scope skill project kind of thing? Or did you just say, I'm done, I'm going to what I do every day now? Right. Yeah. I think I work differently in my writing than I did as a project manager. I, the one thing that is constant is that I have a pretty set schedule, my daily routine. But And then every so often I feel like I have to, oh, I have to get organized. I have to think about where I am in this project and write it down and set deadlines for myself. But yeah, but that's about as far as you go. No, that's good. I think that's fantastic because honestly, when we get to the stage of retirement, so I'm more towards retirement. My goal was to start writing and then the podcast came along and to do it all 
pre-retirement. So then when I get to retirement stage, I have at least a couple of books published. I have all that done. So I know I'm not starting something from scratch in retirement. That was the goal. I have a long way to go before I retire though. It's great because I, during the time that I was working, I was also writing mm-hmm. and balancing too is, can be difficult. And yeah, but I think it's, I think it's important to, to do that work in addition to your, your day job or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I think so too. And my podcast listeners know this. It's what's kept me alive. The inspiration of talking to authors. So it was the idea, Donna, that I was going to write a book. And so I started to write the book and I'm like, I don't know anything about the industry anymore. I looked at it when I was younger, but I didn't know. So then I started asking authors around me how they got published. And I'm like, there's such great stuff. This needs to be a podcast. And so 90 some odd episodes later and two years and my manuscript just got done. because the podcast kind of took over. But it's been such a fascinating thing. So I think you're right. I think it helps us to um, stay balanced. We need to have not just work and play. We need to have a creative outlet as well. So right. And what you're doing is helping other writers learn about what other writers do. Yeah. Yeah. It's really fascinating. And it's really selfish. I just needed to know all this stuff myself. I couldn't hold it all in, so I had to share it. (laughs) So we're sharing it. So there's this one question that I ask all the authors when they come on, because we're told as um, writers and authors that we need to be continually reading. And so if we came to your house and looked on your bookshelf or on your end table where you read, what are you currently reading? um, Subduction by Kristen Miatis Young. And I have to tell you, um, during this pandemic time, I found it difficult to focus and mm-hmm, to read. Mm-hmm. And so I went for several months without reading um, a book. And Kristen's is the first one that I've picked up since I stopped reading back in March. And mm-hmm. the last book I read pre-pandemic was a book that I actually reviewed. It ended up in the Los Angeles Review. It's book, This Is One Way to Dance. It's a collection of essays and dealing with identity, family, place, very beautiful, lovely essays. I just had a great time reading it and a great time writing about it. Oh, wonderful. And and books that I'm planning to read. <laughs> I want to read Leslie Tenorio's um, new book, The Son of Good Fortune. Okay. I had read earlier a few years ago when his collection of short stories came out, Monstrous, which I loved. So I've been eagerly awaiting his novel. I totally understand when March hit, I was, I had an entire year planned out in my mind of what I wanted to do with my writing and the podcast and stuff. And then March hit and it took me about, oh, I would say a good six weeks to even feel like I could even get moving forward again. It was a real struggle for I mean, I and a lot of the other authors I've talked to and creative individuals I've talked to, they all felt the same way. How we did things just all stopped. <laughs> all the uncertainty. It, it really was draining. It really, yeah. truly yeah. was. I agree with you. Let's talk a little bit about your writing process. And before we get started on the writing process, why don't you name for us your, you have three books, if I remember correctly. And do you stay in the same genre for all of them? Or So talk us through that. And then we'll talk about your writing process and see, and we can also go in a little bit about if the writing process is different for each book, which I find usually is the case with authors. So why don't we start with the titles and the genres and then we'll start about the writing process. Okay, my first book was a novel called When the Dela Cruz Family Danced. It came out in 2011. 
And it's a book about a family. I write a lot about families. Mm -hmm. And it was also focused on this one particular character's, the effects of his um, immigration from the Philippines to the United States and the people he left behind, the things that he lost in the process of adapting to a new world, um, and how those things affect his life and his family over time. Okay, so um, unfortunately, I'm getting really bad audio on your end. It's just gurgly. So the last three sentences, I didn't get <laughs> at all. Yeah, yeah, I wonder why that's... Okay. It, it might be internet connection. That's what I've seen happen in the past. So w- if we could just go back to like you describing the book again, and then okay. I'll, I'll edit that in now. It was, I couldn't recover. I don't think I'll be able to recover what we had. <laughs> okay. So When the Dela Cruz Family Dance is a story about a family and focuses on the father of the family and his effects of his having immigrated from the Philippines to the United States at a certain period, reasons why he immigrated, the effects on him emotionally, the things he left behind and the changes he had to make, the adjustments he had to make once he came and how that affected um, him and eventually his family over the years. My second book is called Ola and Goodbye. Mm -hmm. And it's a collection of short stories about three generations of a family, the first of which immigrated from Mexico. I'm Filipino and Mexican, and that's, that's how it's reflected in the stories that I write. And this book focused on, again, this issues are about immigration, assimilation, identity, sense of belonging. And then my most recent book is a collection of stories called Living Color, Angie Boo Stories. And these are very closely linked stories. Um, they focus on one character called Angie Rubio, is trace her development and her sort of awareness of herself in the world as she goes from grade to grade in school. And these are life lessons that she learns that are not necessarily in the classroom, but lessons about gender and race and issues related to that. And just looking at how she how she becomes herself. Mm-hmm. So that was a fun one to write. And I'm excited about how it's going to be received by readers. I love when short stories, a collection of short stories has a stream of one character or, but it's all little short stories versus a full novel. So is that kind of how that book is laid out? It's a stream from this one character, but it's all in short stories. Yeah, because when I was writing it, I was thinking of it as each of these episodes I was writing, I was thinking of them as individual stories. Mm-hmm. And once I put them all together, because, you know, that it's a, it's a chronology. And I think that some people might, it is a novel, which I think it's fine. Uh-huh. And other people might just see them as individual short stories, but there is an overall sort of, I think taken together, there is an overall arc because it is one character uh-huh. going through these different stages. I love it. I think that's fantastic and fascinating for a writer on your aspect of it. How did that work? Did you like sit down and write it chronologically or did all these stories come in little bits and pieces and then you found out, oh, I could put this chronologically into the book? (laughs) Yeah, I think, okay, so I didn't do it chronologically because the first one I wrote was maybe when she was in fifth or sixth grade. Uh 
But then the second one I wrote happened when she was in kindergarten. And so there was this gap and I was thinking, oh, maybe I should do grade by grade. And I think after that, I was, I was doing it in order. Okay. Um, yeah. That's absolutely inspiring to me. I love that. So thank you because I love short stories. I don't know from an author's standpoint, I feel like when we read or write short stories, it really helps us when we have to write a longer book because you have to be able to have the plot, the story, the characters, everything has to be really succinct in short stories <laughs> to make sense. It's almost like writing a good chapter or reading a good chapter. I'm playing with the idea of starting to do some short stories just for my own writing. I have enough projects, but... <laughs> I like the write short stories because I feel like they end <laughs> versus writing. Very cool. Talk us through, so that was the writing process different for all three? Did you get inspiration for your first novel and you sat down and you did you uh, map it out? Are you one that just writes as you go and see what happened and then you clean it up? So how does the process go? And we'll start with the novel first. <laughs> right. The novel, I started when I, in the early years of my process as a writer, I think classes at University of Washington mm -hmm. Continuing Education, which at the time was called Extension Program. Yeah. It was in my third quarter, I was taking a class with Rebecca Brown. And we were look, we were writing stories, but there was one assignment she gave us, she said, write the first chapter of a novel. And so that seemed daunting. But so I did, I wrote the first chapter of what I thought could be a novel. And it actually was inspired by my father. When I got the assignment, I was actually on my way to San Diego for my father's funeral. Oh. And so that whole circumstance made me think about my father's life mm -hmm. and how little I actually knew about it because he had been a very private person about his life, especially his life in the Philippines. And it also, so it's making me think about what was it like to change countries, to go from one country to another, to go from one language to another, to go from one culture to another. And so I started asking those questions. And so I created this character, Johnny De La Cruz. And so that was the first chapter. And then I started writing more. I wrote a whole book and I threw everything out except for 30 pages. That's so brave. I think what happened was because it was so early in my process as learning how to write and learning mm -hmm. how to write a novel. And I think it was necessary for me to go through that whole step mm -hmm. and realize it was just practice, that whole yeah. thing for me. Yeah. How wonderful. And as you were writing that, did you feel like you learned a lot? about your dad or what he might have gone through or did it deviate just in general to what it could be like for anybody because I knew so little about my dad's actual life and also in a sense about my dad himself because he was not a very how do I say it he, he, he was very introverted so mm -hmm. he never shared a lot of, about himself or his feelings so everything about the character that I wrote was a fictional character, <laughs> although he had some of my father's traits, the introvert and the sort of the reluctance to share his emotions. But in terms of his, the character's history that was made up, I actually did set some scenes in the Philippines, oh, okay. um, a place I'd never been, but I had read a lot of books set in the Philippines. I had read a lot about the Philippines. I had seen pictures. And so yeah, yeah. I felt like I could create 
scenes based on that. Mm-hmm. And I felt I was pretty successful because I don't think at least the people I know, and especially the Filipino people I know who, who read it, never questioned the validity of it. You did excellent research. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic, though. If your audience doesn't question it, then you did well. So that's yeah, not that I know of. So yeah, <laughs> that's really good. And then the second book was, like you said, if I remember right, a collection of short stories. Yeah. And was it like you started writing these short stories, and then you realized it could be a collection? What's the stream that brings that collection together? I first started writing stories on particular characters that came to my mind, and again, these were characters that were inspired by family members mm-hmm. or people in that sphere, people my people that my family knew, people that I saw while I was growing up. And so they happened to be my grandmother's generation. Mm-hmm. So after writing a couple of stories about these characters, then I started to think about what happens to the next generation I chose one of those characters to follow her family through to the ne- next two generations. And I have to say that I did, in creating these other characters, I did take inspiration from people in my family. And it's not that these family members were just plucked out of life and put into the book. How you identify a particular characteristic of a person that you know, and you feel like that's something that would fit well or work well with a character that you want to develop. That's where that begins. And then when you start writing, it flowers into something new, a completely yeah. different. Deviates character. enough that they can't say, wait a minute. Right, I know. You wrote about me. No, <laughs> you inspired the start of that character, but we deviated. <laughs> yeah. Although people do want to find themselves in Thank your you. work. They absolutely do. (laughs) I found that out already. (laughs) You have those two books and then your third book. Are each of those books traditionally published? They're all with small presses. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about that process. When you got done with your first book, how did you go about deciding that's what you were going to do? Did you find the press? Did you have an agent? Walk us through that process. Yeah, I actually spent time looking for an agent. And I think I'd sent out about 65 query letters back in the day when we were doing this by snail mail. You're waiting for that reply in the mail and it never comes. It comes, it says sorry. But at a certain period, six different people interested in reading either partial or full manuscript. And so those are out. And then the first person who called me and said, I read it, I love it, I want to represent you. I felt okay, because what am I waiting for? She was very interested in it. She was eager. She loved it. So I felt very positive about it. And she became my agent. And she worked really hard to try and sell my book. And it's a very difficult process. We got quite a bit of interest. But people would say, we love it, but always a but. And the most... Um, frequent but had to do with their not knowing how to market the book. And that was, and I don't know if that's a standard sort of industry thing to let the person down, but it disappointed me uh, a lot. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so my agent never ended up selling it. And I started to think, okay, what do I do now? And 
I sent out the first chapter of the novel to a couple of literary journals just mm -hmm. to get the first chapter out in the world. And I actually had, within a day um, of each other, I had two acceptances and I went with the first one. Mm -hmm. That was published in late spring, an email from the editor of a small press asking to read the entire full manuscript. I sent it to him and he said, I'll get back to you. Might take a month. He got back to me in a week and said he wanted to publish it. It was a new press. It was a small press, but I felt that somebody wanted to publish it. Yeah. So I thought, great. Go for it. Don't regret it. It was with the small press. I think distribution is not as wide as with a big press, not as many people hear about it, but it got out in the world, it got readers, and it got me on the way. Mm -hmm. It was a good thing for me. And it's a confident booster through that process, and you can get something published, and then you move forward with other work. And since then, the press has published many other books, and I feel like it, I'm happy to be among those books that they put out in the world. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Awesome. That's such a great journey. And I appreciate you sharing like the ins and outs of it because it's so important for those of us that are on that journey and we haven't gotten there yet. There's a lot of disappointment. There's a lot of ups and downs. <laughs> There's a lot of everything. <laughs> yeah. So listeners, before we jump into the reading from this author, I wanted to pause for just a minute to have a chat with you about an opportunity that you have to support this podcast. So you can jump onto my coffee.com link and buy me a cup of coffee. And for as little as $3, you can help support this podcast, which has been running for two years and has been free to everyone. So if you enjoy this episode or any of the other episodes, show me your love and your support and send me a cup of coffee. And I promise all the money raised on that site goes directly to keeping this podcast free. Thanks. And let's get to the reading. How about we set the stage for your reading? Before we do that, Donna, remind us again which book you're going to be reading from. And then you can set up the stage, giving us a little background of maybe the characters or if you just want to launch into it and that'll give our listeners enough background. That's great. And I will go quiet while you read. This uh, is an excerpt from the new book called Living Color, Angie Rebuff Stories. And I'm taking little pieces of the chapter called Guided Tours in Living Color, which happens later in the book when Angie is in high school, which is a difficult time for all of us, and um, no different for Angie, called Guided Tours in Living Color, which happens later. Angie stared at the painting, understanding it was a masterpiece, feeling the weight of its history, feeling also the weight of all she didn't know about art and history and the world, feeling as if the weight could squeeze her heart. In the Huntington Gallery, she and her classmates stood before Gainsborough's opus, fittingly awed as they knew they should be. Some felt required to coerce their worship, or at least their own hip assessment of a pompous boy in blue glad rags. Cool, they said, nodding, heads tilted. Maud, someone snickered. But in the echo chamber of the hushed gallery, only the ooh and ah sounds were picked up by the walls and ceiling to be shot back into the air and in their ears. Its tenor changed to something ghostly and disturbing, as if contesting their sincerity. Some of the students giggled and moved on to the next painting. 
Other visitors glided in to fill their spots, prepared to appreciate art better than a bunch of high school kids, despite their being Kimball Park High's best, as Mr. Otto often told them, even if at times it sounded like a plea. Mr. Otto's tradition was to take his advanced language arts and literature class to Los Angeles for a weekend, to be exposed to its cultural and historical sites. All year, Angie had looked forward to this trip, her first real trip away from Kimball Park and into a world of big ideas, expansive buildings, and exalted accomplishments that made her feel ridiculously small and underschooled and impatient to catch up. She was anxious, too, about her procrastination of the assignment due in just a few days. Consider this your magnum opus, Mr. Otto had weeks ago told Angie's class, referring to the 11th grade English requirement to write an autobiography. When she thought of her life thus far, the last thing Angie wanted to do was commit it to paper for Mr. Otto to read and grade. What experiences worthy of inclusion in a form as self-important as autobiography did a 16-year-old in Kimball Park have, especially the 16-year-old that was her, Andy Rubio? It's not as if she hadn't tried to have experiences. They just seemed elusive or inconclusive. And now she was expected to package them in a neatly inked three-hole punch narrative. She wondered now if she was meant to include something about Blue Boy in her autobiography, with whom at the moment she was utterly baffled. Nudged aside by the newcomers, she studied the painting from the periphery. It was European, so it was supposed to be important. She looked at the question on the mimeograph sheet Mr. Otto had passed out on the bus. What can you say about the light and color in Gainsborough's most famous painting? She stood like a spy off to the side of the knot of people and listened to them murmur about the painting in knowing assertive terms, which wrapped themselves around the nib of her pen as she scribbled in her notebook. The background is dark except for the patches of yellow at his back, so that the blue boy appears to emerge from the painting with wings. The different hues of blue give the richness to his clothes. The light on his forehead and cheek warm the sullen mouth. It didn't matter that the words exactly hers. She believed she might have been thinking them. They were just buried deep inside of her or floating around in a random sea of inklings and ideas that were waiting to coalesce. She wandered past other paintings, her eye registering them only fleetingly, her mind still occupied with the color blue, with the seemingly winged boy, with the push and pull of darkened light, near and far, balance and asymmetry, and with the looming deadline for her autobiography. She settled herself on a hard, low bench and scribbled and scratched out and scribbled again until she was satisfied that among the blots and do-overs, there were sentences that combined to make sense, maybe even a story. Blue. The summer I turned five, I watched my father remove the training wheels from my bike, thinking how forlorn they looked tossed on the grass. I straddled the bike, my feet planted on the sidewalk. My father held the bike while I moved my feet to the pedals and lifted my bottom onto the seat. I was balanced only because of my father's grasp. Pedal, he said. I pedaled and the bike wobbled. I remember my father's hand on the back of my bike seat, a cigarette in his other hand. His sandals thwacked the sidewalk as he jogged alongside me the bike still wobbling. 
I knew he would let go, and I waited for it, waited for the fall. I didn't expect that tiny moment when I was balanced on my own, and I felt something close to flight, but also abandonment. When I crashed to the earth and lay on my back, my head just scraping the trunk of a tree, I listened to the wheels of my bike spin on their own, humming without a care. I stared at the blank blue sky, then watched a bruise blot my elbow. My father came and picked my bike up and held it for me again. Sullen, I picked myself up, pretended to limp. He pretended not to notice. This time, I pedaled hard and away from him for just a moment longer than the, than the last time. Black. At my first communion party, I received a child's prayer book, a scapular, and a rosary. I used these piously for a while, the way I, th the way I was taught by the nuns in their black floor-skimming robes. I went to confession regularly, the way I was made to in that airless, darkened closet. I recited my penance and fasted before communion, my hunger a perfect round pit. But I told nobody about the giant black hole that was opening up between what I said and did and what I actually and truly believed. Brown. In the third grade, I was one of three brown children in my school. The other two were my sisters. Phonics lessons and storybooks reminded everyone that brown is an animal. How now, brown cow? The quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog. The little brown monkey, the story of a monkey and his jungle friends. These lessons found their way to the playground where they were chanted on the swings and jungle gym and accompanied by Tarzan yells on the monkey bars. They fired up my limbs. I outlasted every kid on the monkey bars, outlasted my own blisters and stretched to the limit armpits. Orange. Fourth grade was the year of my orthodontia. I wore headgear at night, which made me scary to look at. Yet I was drawn to mirrors, fascinated by my scary self. I got food stuck in my braces. The tiny rubber bands I had to wear in my mouth sometimes came loose and shot out from my teeth, or else were sucked to the back of my tongue on an inhale. Kids teased me. My parents just told me to ignore them. That really solved the problem. For Halloween, I chose a tiger outfit that came with an orange and black striped mask. The eyes were green, which I liked, even though my ordinary brown eyes were visible through the cutouts. Long black whiskers were painted on, on either side of the mouth, which was wide with bared fangs and a menacing tongue. I took some scissors and punctured the plastic and traced around the inner border of the gaping mouth until the teeth and tongue of the tiger were completely cut away. When I put the mask on, my own mouth with its disorderly row of silver-bound teeth was visible in all its exquisite awfulness. Green. The sound of music came out the year I was in seventh grade. My sister Eva and I saw the movie approximately a zillion times. Those green hills alive with the sound of Julie Andrews beckoned to us. We wanted to spread our arms and sing above Salzburg. We imagined ourselves as one of the Von Trapp children with fake English accents, despite being Austrian. 
We longed for a plucky, never-to-be-a-nun governess to rescue our family from estrangement. We listened to the soundtrack over and over, memorized the songs, and recited the movie dialogue which had implanted itself into our voice boxes. We fell in love with Julie Andrews, her bobbed hair, her long nose, her slightly bowed legs, always with the green hills in the background. We wished for soprano voices to be named Maria, or maybe to be the subject of a song. How do you solve a problem like Angie? And like in the song, Angie is not really a problem. She's just Angie. Gray. Gray is the color of my life now. Gray like the color of the lockers in the hallways. Even the slamming of the metal doors during passing periods has a gray sound. Sort of drab and indifferent. Books and papers and lunches are stored in lockers. Other things too. Makeup. Not in mine. Drugs. Not in mine. A poem. Not in mine anymore. I wrote it in chemistry class while Mr. Dombrowski was prattling away about metals and noble gases, inserting jokes about the periodic table of elephants. I'm not a poet and don't aspire to be one. Nevertheless, I wrote a poem. And despite my lack of poetic sensibility, I believe the poem I wrote this one and only poem I will ever write in my life was a good one. It had molecules and atoms in it, atomic weight and bonds. It had metaphorical heft. It had a punchline, not like a joke that made you laugh, but a line that knocked the breath out of you because it was so true. And it was the kind of truth that could only be said in figurative language. But in that long gray hallway of lockers, someone spun the combination on mine, and along with some loose change and my page of conjugations of the Spanish verb to be, took my poem, my words, me. Angie worked all day and that night stayed up late to finish her opus. Her handwriting became larger and loopier. It slanted more steeply so that the last sentence practically collapsed on the standard rule blue line. She fell asleep with the pen cradled in her hand. She dozed through her alarm and later watched through the kitchen window as her school bus drove away while she tossed dry cornflakes straight from the box into her mouth. Angie had never turned in an assignment. Angie had never turned in an assignment late for English class. She changed her clothes and put on sneakers and hoofed the two miles to school. She would be late for class, but she would arrive before it was over. She grew sweaty at the neck and armpits. A pebble found its way into one of her shoes, but she trudged on without stopping. Her bangs, damp and limp, clung to her forehead, but she did not push them to the side. When she got to campus, she walked the empty halls, the soles of her sneakers thumping softly. She was tired from the trek, from the lack of sleep, from thinking and writing about her life. She stumbled into the classroom, barely aware of her classmates, and offered her opus, her blue boy, with both hands to Mr. Otto. Absolutely beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And now I need to read more. Very well done. <laughs> Thank you. So before we go, two things. First off, how do my listeners that want to follow you, where are you at on social media? 
Okay, so I have a website, uh, donnamascolta.com, and I'm also on Facebook, uh, Twitter, and Instagram. Okay. Um, if you just put in Donna Mascolta, you should be able to find me on any of those platforms. And I'll make sure in our show notes that we at least have your website on there so people can find you that way through the show notes. And then your final thoughts for um, our listeners. And particularly, do you have one bit of advice you can give somebody that's starting this journey, hasn't published yet? Somebody like me. (laughs) I'm at a point in my life where a lot of time has already elapsed in my journey, but I can look back and I can remember how many times I felt frustrated and how many times I thought I would never get something published. Even through that frustration, what I realized is that even if my work was never going to be published, I would never stop writing. Because for me, that was the reason I was doing it, to put something on the page, to write a story that made that made a difference for me. So I think that's for me, that's what kept going. And I would still be writing now, even if I didn't have anything published. And as far as advice, I remember when I was learning how to write and learning how to write stories, the thing I was searching for was the secret of making a story work. That's what every time I went to a conference, every time I took a class, every time I spoke to a writer, that's what I was looking for. So I'm here to tell you there's no secret. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. matter of practicing and getting to the point where you're discovering what it takes for you to make that story. Because you acquire these things along the way, and a lot of times you're not aware of it, but it's, it's just a matter of doing it constantly, writing constantly, getting the story done, learning how to reread it and do edits, and even if I can't tell you specifically what I learned from each of those experiences, I know I learned something. And I think that's a process to believe in, I think. Well, Donna, I think that's the best advice I've been given, honestly, because I do think a lot of us do want that magic pill, that magic thing, that magic course, whatever that's going to make us these glossy, amazing authors. And in reality, what you said is so true. There is no secret. It's just keep writing. The secret is writing. (laughs) Thank you so much. Bravo. Very well done on that one. (laughs) Well, thank you. And you can follow Donna, go to the website and let her know you heard um, her on the podcast. It's always fun for us to know that you're listening. So Donna, thanks so much for being here and we appreciate it. Thanks so much, Vicki. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did. Follow us on social media and sign up for our newsletter where you can be entered automatically each month to win a signed free copy of a book from an author that's appeared on the podcast. You can find out more at our website, www.squishpin.com. And finally, if you're an author in the Pacific Northwest and you would like to appear on the show, you can find out more on our website. So until next week, I hope you enjoy the journey. This is Vicki J. Carter signing off.